is the Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 141, operating on August 8th, 2022. This is Drew. I'm an airline ops manager and private pilot trainee, and I'm here with my buddy Doug, an airline pilot. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Doug, how was your week, which included yet another first? It did. And but wait, I, I before, know... before you tell us about that, Doug is in, a, a, again, a nondescript hotel room. You probably hear that a lot. How much do you want to tell the listeners about where you are? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm on a guppy trip right now. I deadheaded to Cleveland on the red eye last night, and then I'm flying to Las Vegas tonight from Cleveland. And then on later this week, I deadhead to Chicago, and then I do back to San Francisco. It's it's a domestic trip. It's a long domestic trip with a couple of red eyes. Totally feels like a guppy trip. But Drew, <laughs> I purposely I gave up a an awesome soul four day trip for this particular trip, and and there's a reason why. I'm fl- tonight. I am flying Cleveland to Las Vegas in the middle of the night. That's all I'm going to say. We'll let the listeners. We we will let the, on, on a triple seven. That that is not a triple seven route. I don't even think that our company flies Cleveland to Las Vegas. We'll let the listeners try and figure out what's going on. Maybe after that, we'll just put up a, a poll. No, it can't be a poll because then no, because if we do a poll, we're limited to four, and one of them is the correct answer. Yeah, just guess what it is, and then we'll we'll talk about it in in full during the next episode. Yeah, be, because I'm I'm sure that there's going to be quite a bit to talk about. Yeah, some some stuff I may not be able to, but I'm. Let's just say I I picked this up because I'm really excited about it. It's to me, it seems like a once in a lifetime opportunity, and I think it's going to be really cool. After it's over, because Doug sounds tired now, and he hasn't even officially started flying a plane yet. Right? No, I was a passenger on the flight last night. Right, you just deadheaded, and you feel <laughs> yeah. like you've been looks like you're talking like you've been in an accident or something. Yeah. I know you tried to get some sleep, so he hasn't actually really worked yet. So when it's all over. We're going to ask the question, do you feel like you were lucky to get this trip or do you feel like <laughs> you got punked? <laughs> I think Doug's wondering himself. Now, he's a little tired and groggy, dazed and confused, I can tell by the way you look. So this episode, will be dragging Doug along a little bit, <laughs> but I have good notes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm, well, welcome welcome to, I guess, my new life now as a triple seven pilot, because I, I felt that way. if we had recorded when I got back from Frankfurt, I, I didn't even know what time zone I was in, what day it was, where I was in the world. Yeah, it's part of our shtick. How tired is Doug on this episode? Or <laughs> how tired is Drew on this episode with my crazy shifts and yeah. massive irregular, irregular ops every week? You mentioned Frankfurt. This was another first for you. And it was your first Atlantic IOE, which is uh, initial operating experience. Tell the listeners, I mean, it was fabulous from the pictures. I saw great weather and you saw something pretty magical en route to uh, Frankfurt. Yeah, it, 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 it was awesome. And, and I mean, we, we talked about it last week that I flew the Atlantic a lot on the KC-10. And this just happens to be my first time with the company. And I, I needed to do it with the line check airmen. It wasn't difficult. It was like riding a bike. I, I have done that so many times before. It's just now in a new airplane with, with the new company. The trip itself went really well. I passed, I'm, which means I'm fully qualified, 100% fully qualified on the triple now. And I can get any trip that we have that comes up, which is good because hopefully I can avoid some of these Newark turns that I've been doing, which <laughs> here I sit in Cleveland. <laughs> but at least when, when a European trip comes up, I can I can pick that up. Drew, it was, it was pretty fascinating because I have only done, on, on the KC-10, I've only done... California to Europe maybe twice that that I can hmm. remember. Most of it it was we would go to the East Coast and then we would go from the East Coast to Europe. If you look at a map, the great a globe actually, the great circle route from the East Coast to Europe doesn't go all that far north. From California to Europe, we went super super high north up over northern Canada, northern Greenland, both there and back. And I think I was telling you that on the return flight that was the highest on the globe I, I think that I have ever been. We hit North 77. We were just less than a thousand miles from the North Pole. Wow, that's crazy. You said it was riding a bike. Is it like riding a bike because it's similar routes or similar ATC 
Senator it's, you talk the, the reason yeah the, the reason why I needed this qualification is because the Atlantic is a, a lot more procedural than any other oceanic airspace in the world because there are so many airplanes in a, a relatively small airspace uh-huh. granted we went pretty far north and there wasn't a lot of other traffic by us both in both directions but the Atlantic is very much more procedural than the Pacific than any other parts of oceanic airspace in the world. It was like riding a bike in that aspect of the procedures of who to check in with, how to position and report, what, what you have to do. And then getting out of Europe, because the European airspace is one of the busiest airspaces in the world, there are different procedures that, that you have to follow, leaving the gate, leaving the airport. Euro control controls the sky overhead. Mm-hmm. And there are these slot times and, and timing restrictions. We, we were fully boarded, ready to go, sitting at the gate for 30 minutes in Frankfurt door closed breaks off ready to push in Frankfurt for 30 minutes that wasn't us that wasn't the airport that was euro control telling the airport mm. we cannot get this airplane in the air until x time so don't push them off the gate until y time to make that airborne time because of traffic because of traffic Be- wow. because euro euro control controls that and ultimately it has to do with when you hit your oceanic entry point when when you coast out is what we call it when you when you leave the coast of europe and and actually fly over the ocean because there are so many airplanes in that in that relatively small airspace and i i know you look at a map and the atlantic is two thousand miles across and it's this giant ocean but we're we're all stacked together in a, a pretty tight window and euro control tries to basically funnel everyone in think of it like to a few tracks yeah th- think of it like a highway that uh, a four or five lane highway that mm-hmm. there's road construction two miles ahead and it, you see the sign that says right three lanes are closed two miles ahead now everyone has to funnel in together all the cars have to merge essentially that's what's going on in the atlantic airspace leaving europe so and i wonder they have to they, they have to factor that time yeah be, because they, they can't have a speed up or slow down very easily so they time your departure based on when you're going to get to that coast out point i wonder if that has to do with uh euro control staffing you know no because it was it was like that pre-covid too got it okay it's just summer traffic it's not not even summer it's like that year round in europe it's it's just really? it's yeah it's it's busy because Europe is a relatively small continent, so even even during the summer, even during the winter, when traffic is down, there still is a lot of traffic out there. There still is quite a bit of transatlantic, and yeah, of course, it gets a lot worse during the summer. But that that's that's a year round thing in Euro control. Wow. So you're saying it's worse than Newark in that respect? In that in that yes, in in that <laughs> respect, yeah. But, oh, but to to answer your question, mm-hmm. this something magical. This was yes. and where I was going with why why I talked about California to Europe and why we went so far north. We took off at sunset and drew that this was actually, this was a magical flight from multiple reasons. We took off on two eight left. We we talked about it last week. If it was going to be two eight left or two eight right took off on two eight left in San Fran, the sun set as we were taking the runway, like the sun went down behind the horizon as we took the runway, we rotated and started to climb and the sun rose again. For a, a brief. Oh moment. right. Okay. Because we were we no, were getting oh, higher, even though the sun is mm-hmm. is moving to the west and away from us. We oh, that's great because you can see over the horizon. The horizon, <laughs> and we great. saw the sun, and then we saw the sunset a second time in a window of about five minutes. That was magical thing number one. That was yeah. really. I've cool. never seen that. I never. That was my first time. And then we went almost due north, up up basically. I think we went uh, like over Spokane and then over Saskatoon and, and then started to head east from there. So initially we're going almost due north. The sun this time of year, I, I know we're starting to get to where it's shifting more towards the south. But because it's not September 21st, the sun is still north of due west when it sets. If, that, if, if you think about it from like a conceptual standpoint. As we're going north, the sun is off at like our 10 o'clock, the, the sky, like we can't see the sun, but it's still light. As we flew north, it never got fully dark. And that light shifted around the horizon to the north. And the sunrise was actually almost due north because we were, we were up over the Arctic Circle. Everyone in the these latitudes, like North America, Europe, even parts of South America, you think the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. 
this was the sunset in the west and it rose almost due north because we were flying north up over the arctic circle that was something that was really cool too but the real magic was the northern lights i've seen the northern lights before i have never seen them during the summer i've never seen them when the sky is still partially light and we saw them for 90 minutes and it was horizon to horizon and it was like what what you picture the, the you see pictures of northern lights you see videos of them dancing and and just waving all over the place that's what it was and it was funny i, I got some really cool pictures and i showed them to my kids mm-hmm. and i asked them if they knew what it was and they both said yeah that's the stuff in the sky from the movie frozen yeah, we, <laughs> we know of course <laughs> and they, they weren't that impressed and they moved on with what they were doing you were in the right place the right time to see this because there's not enough there's not enough darkness during this time of the year to see it. And in fact, you sent me something from a, you know, a reputable website saying that you don't see the Aurora Borealis in the summer because mm-hmm. you only see it in the winter, but you prove them wrong. So it's yeah. not all you can see. And well, and, and part of that is because uh, the, the Aurora Borealis very rarely gets very far south. I've seen it in the continental US once in my life, and that was a very rare circumstance we we rarely see it in the lower 48 lower canada rarely sees it usually it's the northern very northern latitudes alaska northern canada scandinavia places like that 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 sees the aurora borealis which is why it's rare to see it during the summer because at the farther north you go it's light almost throughout the night so you're not going to see it which meant that this was a very active evening when it came mm-hmm. to solar activity yeah. that we were able to see it far enough south in canada before it started to get really light and i posted a, a picture of it on facebook and my cousin made a comment saying that apparently there was a really big solar flare uh, mm-hmm. that that day yeah. and that's probably the reason why it went as far south as it did and, and why we were able to see it wow all right so listeners i'll be posting uh doug's pictures on our website nextripnetwork.com so Take a look. They're really fascinating. Did you tell the customers to look outside? We had been airborne at that point for probably two hours, and I didn't make an announcement because it, everyone's sleeping. sleeping. It was yeah, a, it was a late good. takeoff. When I went out to the to take a bathroom break, I told the flight attendants Perfect. about it, and they went to go look out the window. So I'm sure mm-hmm. if there were some passengers awake, they the flight attendants probably told them. Yeah, that's but. perfect. Yeah, no need to. Oh my god, someone they would have been really upset if they're going to a business meeting and they woke. But you know, when they open the shades, it's like, okay, I get it. This is magical. This is a once in a lifetime. But you mm-hmm. never know. Yeah. All, All right, Drew. So I've got some questions. Mm-hmm. Some questions for you. What are you glad that you didn't buy the Piper Warrior? cockpit photo <laughs> yes <laughs> and, wh- and why now are you glad that you didn't buy it because i'm what well, before we move on frankfurt you you were there on a beautiful day it was, yeah. sunny, it was like perfect and you had your you had a schnitzel that was oh i told you okay so are you gonna have go have a beer and schnitzel now having no idea what you're gonna get mm-hmm. and then an hour from now you send me a picture of a beer and a schnitzel a beer and a schnitzel <laughs> but you it was can't over go to frankfurt the- you can't go to Frankfurt without getting beer and schnitzel. And a strudel for dessert, right, at some point. But it was an over-the-top schnitzel with a with a soft-boiled egg on top. Yeah, it, it had like an over-easy egg on the top. I'd never had that. It was del- absolutely delicious. I do. I love Europe at all times of year. But to me, Europe is magical in the summer because the sun sets so late. Yeah. And it's nice and warm. Yeah, we, we went out to dinner as a crew. And then I, I went to a couple of beer gardens along the mine river had an amazing evening just walking the town basically got up and ran in the morning and i I, this was another new thing for me i had a pretzel for breakfast one of the normal even in germany no okay i mean it was my breakfast it was about noontime so i I had it but being being there i i realized how much i missed just the the culture of europe the the cafe culture because i hadn't been there in four years i texted marissa and i said we're i am taking you to europe at some point this fall or winter you have to yeah and she was all excited she's like oh the girls will love that i was like no i am taking (laughs) you to europe this fall we'll let the parents watch the girls we we need a a couple's week or weekend or a couple days away in in europe you're in reserve and you're and your low seniority and all that stuff, but you can find a three day weekend. Europe is, you know, a quick it's easy. Quick trip. Mm-hmm. That's enough about Europe. Let's talk about the this Piper 
a couple, uh, several months ago, we talked about me transitioning from the 737 to the 777. Yeah. I, I think you have a transition now that you can talk about. Well, I may, I don't want to say a hundred percent. I'm reevaluating. You know, I'm training to be a private pilot. I have 10 hours in the Piper Warrior at a school that's great. But I learned during this process that I can do the ground school before, to do the ground school, take the FAA test and be done with that. And, you know, and you and I talked about everyone I talked to, you, John DeBray, who listens, uh, Ryan Kaufman, all pilots, they all said, yes, go ahead and take the ground school first because it'll better prepare you and you can get that out of the way. So I was looking at that and I was also looking at other flight schools because it's important that you click with your instructor. I really like my instructor uh, for the Piper Warrior, but I thought, you know, let's, let's explore. So I went to another airport in Middle River, Martin State Airport. This is going to be, I'm, this area is so great, Doug. I, you know, just a few miles up the road, whole different environment. It's Middle River. It's in a little town of Middle River, which is east of Baltimore. And it's called Martin State Airport. Lockheed Martin has a huge facility there. Hmm. And the Martin company that made airplanes, and we'll learn, we'll talk more about this as we learn more, owned that airport. Now it was bought or it was given to the state of Maryland. So it's still Martin State Airport, but it's a, it's a federal or it's a state state airport. The airplanes that this flight school has, they're um, Cessnas. And I've always said I like the low wing airplanes better. And I flew this Cessna with this instructor, really great guy, you know, very motivated, only 800 hours, but really had a love of flying and, you know, really enjoyed showing me everything. I'm probably going to go with him, but flew a Cessna 172 Skyhawk. It was a much better flying experience. The biggest, the biggest thing was it had a glass cockpit. So it was like a low rent triple seven. <laughs> dude, it was fabulous. I mean, yeah. on approach, he turned on the, uh, the glide slope or the little boxes that come up. And I'm like, I was telling him, Duncan, this is this is almost too easy. He turned that off so that I could get some more practice because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want I don't want all this help. But I'm telling you, that plane was a dream to fly. It was much more stable than the Piper Warrior. Like we did a slow speed stall, and I had to fight that thing for to make it go into a stall. It's because the high wing the the mm-hmm. high wing makes it a much more stable airplane, and that's part of the reason why a lot of people learn on high wing. A lot of people learn on Cessnas and get their privates on that before they move on to low lower wing, more high performance type airplanes. Yeah, and it's I, it's the same model, not the same model, but the same category of airplane. I would say because it's a small four seater, but it, it was wider inside, so it's a much more it was a com- more comfortable cockpit. It was also, it, it flew much smoother and the trim, like just a little bit of trim, like it was very responsive to everything. I'm sorry, I'm going long on this anyway. So it's all going to be about the 777 and the, probably the Cessna Skyhawk. <laughs> <laughs> this was your introductory flight. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk quite a bit about it and how the transition is, because I'm curious what it's like for you. And we don't have to talk about this today, but going from an airplane that you've been studying for the last couple of months, now all of a sudden a brand new airplane, and and you're only 10, 15 hours into your flight training. Yeah, I'm 10 hours into it. And we're going to talk about the ground school after 10 hours of training. And I have some really, I'm not, I'm finding that it's probably wasn't a bad idea. Uh, or it hasn't, it has turned out exactly how it's supposed to be. Bec- and, and we're getting to it. And we'll talk about it in this other. Yeah, we, we can get into that right now because you're reassessing your private pilot training and getting your ground school out of the way on your own time versus doing the ground school with your flight instructor. Did it help to have a few flight hours under your belt first? You also mentioned that you organized a training class for your new ops managers, but that their class was scheduled a couple weeks after they started. Yeah, I didn't realize the segment was coming up right now. <laughs> oh, sorry. That was, that okay. was an easy transition. No, keep this in. For some reason, I thought the the segment about this was coming up later. <laughs> okay, Drew, you talked about the ground school and, and how you're probably going to do that right now. And we talk about how aviation can move, can spill over into life in general and, and professionalism and, and things that we do on the outside. Have you found that what you're doing with now doing this ground school have you found what you're doing with your flight hours? Have you have you found that to be beneficial for your your actual job, your your day job? Doug, yeah, I, I want to talk about how this way that I'm learning 
is actually good for, it seems, like for everyone, regardless of its, if it's aviation or not. I mean, we're discussing airport ops and learning how to fly, but I think this would apply to uh, a lot of fields. We talked about me doing the ground school, and initially I said, why didn't I do the ground school first before even starting to fly, getting that out of the way, instead of paying for 10 hours of flight training and then starting the ground school? Now I'm thinking that was a perfect, because now I'm, I'll be doing the ground school. I feel like it'll have more meaning because I've, I have spent some time in the air, on the flight deck, around the airplane. It's going to be more meaningful, and I think I'm going to get more out of the ground school because I can connect the dots. And I mm-hmm. think that's the key point, connecting the dots. But I wanted to tell you about a similar situation at work. You know, we're hiring a lot of people. We've hired a bunch of new zone managers, and we decided that we would have them sit in the seat with someone shadowing them, with a mentor with them, as they worked their zone, as they worked their flights. It's a harrowing experience because everything's new. But they're seeing how it is. They're seeing how the flow is. We have the guardrails, which is the mentor. They're not going to cause any security or safety issue because someone, an experienced person is with them. And we thought we'd have them go through that and then do the in-class training. I created an in-class training with my team, a full day, to answer all the questions that they w- that they had out of the operational environment. So we don't have to worry about the phones ringing and the dugs and the mm-hmm. pilots calling, needing this and that, and the flight attendants calling for cups. <laughs> Take them out of the environment and then sit down for eight hours in zero to 60 from zero to uh, experience zone supervisor. Doug, it, it's working great because now they're in class and they're engaged because now they are connecting the dots. So and they know what they know what questions to ask as opposed to just sitting in a classroom environment about something that they don't know anything about or something that they haven't seen before. Yeah, they're they're literally filling in the blanks. There's and they have real experiences and real scenarios that they've already dealt with that they can ask. Okay, so I had this and we were supposed to offer egress at this time. Did I do it right? It's like, yes, you absolutely did it right. Or not exactly. So what you're supposed to do is every 30 minutes, you have customer service offer egress if the flight's at the gate on a long delay, for example. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then we actually show them. I have a slide with the DOT requirement spelled out. And it's like, this is why we do this. And I like to scare them a little bit and tell them that if they have a 777, where, which was at the gate on a long delay, and we never offered egress, it could be $12 million and none of you want to be in that hearing with the DOT. It makes it real because they have experienced planes that come to the gate. Now they know, okay, this is why we do it. You were a trainer. You you trained people in the flight simulators. Did they have any time in the KC-10 before they had in-class training or CBT training or how, does, how did that work? No, they don't have time in the KC-10, but you have to think about it from the aspect of they're coming from pilot training or they're coming from another airplane. So they already have experience flying an airplane. It's not the, it's not the KC-10. They, they don't have experience flying the KC-10, but they understand the concepts that we're talking about. They, they understand all the, the flying portion and, and all of that. It definitely is 100% beneficial to, in my opinion, to get that flight time or, or anything, not, not just the flight time in, in any sort of training situation to have that ability to, to experience it for even just a little while before you actually sit down to learn what it is that you're going to be doing. And they because, don't have to be flying it, right? They can sit in the cockpit and just absorb. Be a yes. Yes. Be, because otherwise we're we're putting people in a classroom setting and and trying to teach them but also encourage them to ask questions and mm-hmm. you you don't know what questions to ask if you haven't seen it yet and you, and you're just going to sit there with a blank stare yeah. and the instructor is is going to be thinking why are these people not asking questions mm-hmm. it's because they don't know what questions to ask they they don't know what they don't know until they don't know it and by seeing it first and experiencing it when we sit down with students in the KC10 they they already have anywhere from probably a hundred hours to possibly a thousand plus hours be, before they sit down and, and start training with us. They know what questions to ask, mm-hmm. even though it's not the same airplane. They understand the general com- concepts of aviation, and they know then, okay, how do I connect the dots in this new airplane? Yeah, as opposed to what I was flying previously. Yep. So that's the way to do it. So, yeah, I mean, for example, if you are thinking about 
doing your private pilot training, I would recommend being in the flight deck, being in the cockpit, go for an intro flight, go for a few flights, you know, get, Mm -hmm. get used to flying the airplane because when you are doing the ground school and your, your CBT, your computer-based training or whatever ground school you're at is talking about stalls and how the angle of attack and the wing cord versus the relative wind, how that increases and then you lose lift and you stall. If you've actually experienced that in the cockpit, you're going to remember this, these concepts better because you, mm-hmm. it has meaning. It's not just lines and a cartoon airplane, you know, on a piece of paper. Yeah. You have that, that real life experience to draw from real world experience makes in-class training more meaningful. So that's what we're getting from that. Doug, speaking of the real world, it looks like some 787s will finally take on passengers in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, Boeing is finally getting a break. We talked about Boeing's continuing challenges with the 737-10 and Dash 7 certification with the looming December 31st government deadline. 777-9 certification is also held up with deliveries not expected until 2025. The Seattle Times reported that a flight control issue and late changes to flight control software and hardware electronics were the roadblocks, which we we said we would answer the listeners why the 777 is delayed right now, because when we recorded a couple weeks ago, we weren't entirely sure. Here's the answer why. That's why, yeah. And it's way too complicated for any of us to understand, because these are intricacies of the electronics and how they affect the flight control systems and the hardware. Doug, we're checking them off the list, because we had three that were in, in limbo, right? The seven, the 787, 777-9, and the uh, 737-10. Now we have one that's left the gates. Doug, it's been all bad news bears for Boeing. Does that reference mean anything to you, or did I con- did I continue to age myself? No, it's I, I understand the reference. All right, for the listeners, bad news bears, these were movies about this baseball team that would always lose. <laughs> But there was always a nice message at the end. It's not about winning and that all that nonsense. But <laughs> bad news bears, this Boeing 787 delivery story is both a relief for Boeing and the airlines that need the planes, like yesterday. 787 deliveries were held up while the FAA looked over production flaws, including gaps in fuselage panels and Boeing's inspection methods. It's Thursday, and this is what we know about the deliveries. The FAA acting chief will meet with the FAA inspectors in South Carolina today and make a decision on whether to allow the resumption of deliveries of the 787, which were stopped in May 2021. Boeing will still inspect each aircraft before they're released to airlines. This function was delegated to Boeing in the past, but was stripped from them due to production quality and other concerns. Deliveries could resume this month with an aircraft for American believed to be the first one. American expects to receive nine 787s this year. You know, American wasn't prepared for this summer as much as they could have been, not because of their, it wasn't their own issue. I mean, everyone has pilot issues, but they were expecting these 787s for this summer and they were expecting to launch new routes, which they had to pull back because they didn't have this from Boeing. Yeah, nine airplanes. Hopefully the, they're staffed and ready to go for those but that i mean nine seven eight sevens that is a lot of capacity that's yeah. going to get dumped into american system all in the next couple of months which is great for the airline it's great for the customers it's it's great for boeing because boeing isn't getting paid for these airplanes while they're sitting on the tarmac waiting for delivery and we talked about the new airplane that boeing wants to design and we're all begging boeing to design <laughs> they can't do it until they start getting cash flow these nine airplanes to American and hundreds more to other airlines. And the pandemic is waning. Airlines are looking for wide bodies to run these long haul flights and they need these airplanes like today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this on, was it the last episode or the one before where we're upset that Boeing isn't moving along with an NMA, but how do you do that when you have three planes that you still aren't delivering? You know, first things first. So this is a good start. All right, Doug, this added capacity, along with staffing issues improving, will help American and all airlines cope better with the boom in traffic. Europe, however, continues to struggle with high volumes and low staffing. We talked about hate selling $1,000 tickets between Frankfurt and Munich to turn people away from booking seats just because the airlines couldn't manage it. Now we have not selling tickets to completely shut off the pipeline for a while. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's, it's totally totally different than hate selling it's yeah, we just are like not going to sell tickets even though the seats are there this time it's british airways at heathrow 
We talked about it a couple weeks ago, how Heathrow placed a cap of 100,000 passengers per day to deal with staffing shortages through October 29th. They're up to 125,000 passengers a day at Heathrow in 2019. We're very close to reaching those numbers again. British Airways is playing its part by not selling any short-haul tickets from Heathrow through August 15th. This will include flights of three hours or less within the UK and Europe, and it will not affect existing bookings. Drew, is it going to get extended past the 15th? Because the, the Heathrow blockade, if if you can call it that, <laughs> is through October. Uh-huh. Yeah, it might get extended unless, you know, things start getting better. It might start getting better for British Airways. You know, their ground workers were about to strike, but they got an 8% raise and they're not striking. So mm-hmm. that, that part is quelled. But you still have the problem with uh, the lack of pilots, lack of planes. We'll see, but it, it's a good sign. There are some airlines that are very upset about this. Emirates is upset about it. Virgin is upset. So they're not playing nice, nice. And I, I could not find the answer to this. And then, listeners, if you know, I don't know how they're enforcing this. Are they telling airlines to do this voluntarily? Are they telling everyone reduce your seats by 30%? I don't think this has any teeth. I think they're asking airlines to reduce, but I don't see anything where it's legislation or or there's a requirement. I can see why they would be upset about this, because if, if you think about it from a financial standpoint for the airlines, especially in Europe, Europe during the winter, airlines generally lose money or, or they they come very close to breaking even. They make most of their money during these busy summer periods to then survive the winter, if, if that makes sense. And this is the prime season right now for airlines like Virgin, for British Airways, to sell all these tickets, take advantage of the masses of people who are ready to travel and, and have the money to do it. And then you have these Heathrow restrictions that basically set a cap and as the, from an economic standpoint, they set a ceiling and say, mm-hmm. you can't sell these tickets. BA is still going to operate these flights that people had already bought the, the seats on. If there's a flight that only has 50 people on it and it's 150 people, BA yeah. is obligated to still operate that flight and it's going to be at a loss. This is after a couple of years of giant losses during the pandemic. This situation could not have come, have, could not have come at a worse time for BA, for Virgin. Virgin was in bankruptcy a year ago, and now they, they can't sell additional tickets through Heathrow. Uh, yeah. I, I can see why they're upset. For losing. Because the, the, this, is, this is not their fault. The airlines could, could be blamed for certain things. Heathrow, staffing issues, that's not Virgin's fault. That's not BA's fault. But they're the ones who ultimately are going to pay the price for this. But Doug, on the other side of the coin, if they operate all this, you're going to see the piles of bags at Heathrow again, and you're going to see the long lines. Who's right? I mean, I know they're upset, but maybe Heathrow is making a decisive move to make, you know, to make things more manageable and avoid the avoid the meltdown. Mm-hmm. Let's hope. Wait, we don't talk about hope in airport in airport and flight operations. Hope is not a plan or a strategy. We have a quote unquote high confidence level. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? <laughs> That's what we're told at work. Hope is not a strategy. We have a high confidence level that our industry industry struggles with capacity and staffing will continue to improve. Doug, but unfortunately, there is one area where we have to use hope because there's no plan and there's no uh, there's no roadmap yet. Hope is all we have right now for this as there is no plan or timeline to approve. Thanks for letting me introduce this volatile topic, Drew. Sorry, seat size. <laughs> The FAA has asked for public comment on minimum seat size, and just speaking to a few of our friends, the feelings are strong. Here's what we know about the FAA request. The FAA has yet to comply with the congressional order from 2018 to establish minimum seat dimensions on airliners, but this week it looks like the FAA is starting the process with an, quote, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking indicating that they are considering seat size legislation. The FAA is asking for your feedback with a 90-day comment period. Live education testing was conducted at the FAA's Oklahoma City facility to study airplane evacuations for more data. The test had 60 people who were all able-bodied, and they used a cabin mock-up. Paul Hudson of ferryflights.org told USA Today, quote, I got to witness part of the evacuation testing in Oklahoma City testing was completely unrealistic. Of the testing I witnessed, the ones that were in the narrower configurations, they were about 20% slower, but the conclusion of the reports was, quote, 
No, it made no difference, but they didn't realize their data, just their conclusions. This is a sensitive topic, right? Because the airline, we want the airline, we work for the airlines. We want the airlines to make money and we want seats to be affordable and accessible to people. So this legislation may work. It sounds great. We all want wider seats, but if that increases the cost of a ticket price, are the, are the results what we want? Like we don't want less people traveling because they can't afford tickets. It's, it's a touchy subject. I want one of our listeners and the host of non-rev lounge put it really well. He said, the only reason the government should step in should be for safety. Other than that, it should be the airlines to decide the product they want to offer. You know, it's a market economy. Mm-hmm. So if you're not happy with a 17 inch seat, you can get a 20 inch seat on another airline. You, yeah. you know, you can choose where to spend your money. Having said that, <laughs> this organization, the one, uh, the comment that you read, Paul Hudson, flyerrights.org. Oh, so, flyer rights. I said ferry flights, I think. Oh, ferry flights. I don't know why, because I'm tired. I see. I, <laughs> I definitely read flyerrights.org now. And when I read ferry flights, I was like, why, why, why is, why is, why is there, this? why is that a thing? Why is he talking about it? I apologize. <laughs> well, now that you said that, we should probably start that website before someone takes it. So yeah. <laughs> people know what ferry flights are and non-rebs can get on. But anyway, flyerrights.org. <laughs> We'll forgive Doug because he has had probably two hours of sleep in the last day. They are saying for men, shoulder width, 87% of the time for men, their shoulder width is wider than the seat. For women, they're saying 24% have hips wider than the seat. These are normal passenger sizes now. As Americans, we're not fitting in these seats comfortably at all. Just to give you an example, some of our favorite aircraft, the 787, the economy seats are 17.3 inches wide. Same on the on the 737, 17.3. You go to an A220 and it's like 19 inches. An A350 is 18.5 inches. If they mandate a 20 inch or a 19 inch seat width, that means all of these airlines that fly the wide bodies, the 777 would have to go from 10 seats across back to nine seats across. The 787 would go from nine seats across, which it is now to eight seats. What do you do, Doug, with the 737? Do you make it five seats across? That would be the only way to have a wider economy seat on a 737. That's the only thing that they could do if, if this legislation does go through. And I, we've used this example in the past of consumers talk with their wallets. They, consumers are very loud about what they want, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they'd speak with their, their money. And passengers want meals on flights but they're not willing to pay for it. Passengers passengers want first-class amenities, but they're not willing to pay for it. Passengers now are the ones who are demanding wider seats, more (laughs) legroom. But as soon as that happens, airlines barely make money as it is. We've talked about the operating revenues and and net margins and, and how it's in the single digits and the very, very often losing quarters, losing years where airlines don't make money. If you take seats out because of new legislation that that say that you have to have wider seats, you're still going to have to pay the bills. And how are you going to do that with fewer seats? You're going to have to raise the prices, the, the ticket costs. This is going to impact people like Spirit, like Frontier, like even Southwest to, to some extent, who their, their market is based on people who pay $39 to get crammed into a tin can to fly to Branson, to fly to Biloxi, to mm-hmm. fly and they're okay, to, and they're okay with that. Yeah, this is this is going to have giant ramifications for the traveling public, meaning fewer people are going to be able to afford aviation now. What have we talked about in the last 15, 20 years in this industry about how it's become affordable for the masses? When you start taking seats out because of legislation, because the law requires it, now you're going to have massive ticket price increases on top of the ones that people are already complaining about. It's, it's a sticky subject, but you said market economics. I, I say, as long as it is not unsafe, I agree with Tyler. And first of all, Mm -hmm. Tyler is great seeing you in San Francisco. Great spotting yesterday. I forgot to mention that in the intro. Yeah. Tyler was not revving for his birthday. Happy birthday, Tyler. He was not revving for his birthday. He did Two two red eye transcons in two consecutive days. So he went back and forth to the East Coast 
for his his birthday present to himself just happened to meet up in san francisco for a couple hours anyways happy birthday tyler moving back to this topic tyler is totally right that if if people are willing to pay for the product that is given to them as long as it is still safe then that's fine and i know that this person from flyerrights.org i have I, haven't I, heard of this. I, I read it i read the title of the website correctly there so. <laughs> I know he talked about witnessing an evacuation test in Oklahoma City, and he said it didn't go the way the data provided. Okay, that's fine. But let's look at some airplane evacuations in the last couple of years. You had the British Airways 777 in Vegas that that blew the engine, and there are photos of people leaving. Well, first of all, half of the slides didn't come out correctly. The wind blew Mm -hmm. some of the slides out. One of the wings was on fire. They only had a couple of exits that those passengers could use. Yeah. No one died. A couple of people got injured in the slides, which is to be expected. People were able to get off that airplane in a, enough time that everyone was safe. And that was with a whole bunch of exits blocked. Look at yeah. another one. There was an American 7-6. I think it was in Miami or somewhere. The blue engine. Everyone mm-hmm. was able to get off the airplane. Real world examples where it's not a, a test dummy who's sitting there knowing that they're going to be doing this fake evacuation and being able to do it in the amount of time prescribed. Normal scenarios that are happening once every couple of years where there's a mass evacuation because of an emergency, people are getting off the airplane. So the current, in, in my opinion, the current setup mm-hmm. is safe. Is, isn't yeah, that what We don't have anything showing? to disprove that. We don't have anything to disprove that. But Doug, on the other side of the coin, you know, we're not taking a, a stand on either side, but we're looking at both sides of it. If a seat is wider, maybe people will enjoy the travel experience more and, and come back more often because if they have a bad experience and it's uncomfortable, maybe they'll drive next time because it was so uncomfortable, but they have a wider seat on the other side of the coin that may bring us more dollars because they enjoyed flying more. So that's the other side of the coin. And in general, you know, it'll make traveling better if the minimum seat size was seat width was 19. I think if this happens, I think we might see the seat pitch, changing uh, or a ma- um, a minimum of 31 inches, perhaps. I know some airlines have 28 inches. That would be easy to do because you don't have to change the width. The other thing I was thinking, Doug, you know, they keep saying airplane seats are getting smaller and Americans are getting bigger or people are getting bigger. The 737 is the same cross-section as the 707. So the seats wouldn't have been wider. So that's not true for the 707 and the 737. It's the same size seats. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Drew, we're going to go from one controversial topic to another possibly controversial geopolitical, but it deals with aviation. The U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, visited Taiwan yesterday to show our support for the island nation. However, this visit angered China, which does not recognize Taiwan as an independent nation. Flight Radar 24 states that the flight, which had call sign SPAR-19, was the most tracked flight in history. I will say that again, the most tracked flight in history. I know we talked about a lot of those Russian flights back in February, getting some mm-hmm. of the some of their diplomats back home, some of the oligarchs going different places that, that were very high tracked. This was the most tracked flight in history. Now, flight tracking is still relatively new, but still. Yeah, because they were watching to see what China would do. Would China send uh, fighter planes to uh, direct this plane to land someplace else? So looking at the flight path, this 737, is a, we're going to talk about this series. It flew, I think they, where were they? They were in Malaysia, I think, or mm-hmm. Singapore? Kuala Lumpur. I think they were Kuala Lumpur. So instead of, yeah, so instead of going direct to Taiwan over the South China Sea, they actually went east, south around Indonesia, uh, and then over the Philippines, and then to Taiwan from the south, the southeast. They were not in China's area at all even close without diving into a whole segment about geopolitics let's just focus on the speaker's aircraft the boeing c40 this is a 737-700 that got drafted into the military (laughs) i think i think a lot of people know i love the 737-700 which doug you referred to as my hot rod absolutely it is love that plane there are three variants the c40a clipper operated by operated as a navy transport and the c40-b and c operated by the air force spar 19 which was this 
flight, which is the most tracked flight in history. Well, I guess in in flight radar history, mm-hmm. flight radar twenty four history. <laughs> Spar was an Air Force C forty dash C. Doug, you worked in the Air Force. What do we know about the Air Force C forty variants? Yeah, th- this is what we have from the Air Force, and I actually have several friends who fly this airplane, and they no abso- they absolutely love it. Yeah, the aircraft are variants of the Boeing Next Generation seven thirty. 700 and combine the 737-700 fusel- fuselage with the wings and landing gear from the larger and heavier 737-800. The basic aircraft has auxiliary fuel tanks, a specialized interior with self-sustainment features, and managed passenger communications. They're based on the Boeing BBJ, which stands for, stands for Boeing Business Jet. The cabin area is equipped with a crew rest area, distinguished visitor compartment and mm. sleep accommodations, two galleys, and business class with seating and work tables. Therefore, selected the C-40, a military version of the 737 business jet, to replace the aging fleet of C-137 aircraft for U.S. combatant commanders. The aircraft have a range of up to 5,800 miles at speeds of up to 615 miles per hour. Drew, this is essentially a mini version of Air Force One. It really is. The range is 5,800. That's incredible for a 737. I mean, that you can easily get to Europe. You can get from San Francisco to Tokyo at mm-hmm. 800 miles. The 737 that you flew, the 800, wasn't it 4,100 range or high? No, it was, high it was a, a little less than that. We Because when I did San Francisco, Liberia, that was about a 7, 15, 7 hour, 15 minute flight. And it was mm-hmm. about 30, what was that? 30. 200 3300 statue miles so about 2900 nautical miles okay but if you think if you think about this this has aux fuel tanks which definitely Mm -hmm. definitely helps the range but it also is not carrying cargo or a lot of it it's also not carrying a lot of passengers so it's zero fuel weight which is what we call the when the airplane an airplane is weighed when it comes out of the factory and and that is it's zero fuel weight then what, at least with airlines and, and on the KC-10, we would do this too. You increase your zero fuel weight to what your payload is for that day, meaning how much cargo do you have and how many passengers are you carrying? You add that to the weight of the airplane that comes from Boeing. That then becomes your zero fuel weight. This airplane has a max takeoff gross weight. Whatever the max takeoff gross weight minus the zero fuel weight is how much fuel you can put on board. And then we talk yeah. about fuel and time, not really distance per se. And and because this airplane doesn't carry a lot of cargo, doesn't carry a lot of passengers, it has a relatively low zero fuel weight compared to what uh, the amount of, of fuel that you can put on this airplane. Yep. Yep. It's a Boeing BBJ that can go nonstop to a lot of destinations. All right. The version represented by call sign SPAR-19 was a C-40-C which has the capability to change its configuration to accommodate from 42 to 111 passengers. The C-40B's primary customers are combatant commanders, and the C-40C, which is uh, this flight, those customers are members of the cabinet and Congress, as was the case here. The C-40C replaced three C-22s, a militarized 727, operated by the Air National Guard and National Guard Bureau to airlift personnel. The C-40C was the first military aircraft to be acquired as an off-the-shelf aircraft for the Department of Defense. This is interesting. So they're buying a plane that's meant for commercial uses for the military. They're saying, so by using commercial off-the-shelf acquisition practices and a new lease program for the C-40C model, the Air Force reached a benchmark for this aircraft's procurement. The C-40C was the first military aircraft to be purchased in this manner. Is our government actually doing something that's economical and financially responsible? Here? Yeah, what, what, what this means, because I worked with acquisitions for part of my time in the Air Force and, and with contracting off the shelf means like it, people will, will ask the question, well, Air Force One is a 747. Is that not off the shelf? No, it's not. The Air Force designed that airplane or, or requested an airplane and Boeing then designed even though it's a 747-200, it's yeah. fully designed by Boeing for the Air Force. Bo- or the Air Force didn't just say, we'll take four 747 or two 747-200s and then just put these things inside of it. That's what off the shelf means, is that Boeing went, or the Air Force went to Boeing 
and said, we'll take X number of 737, 700 BBJs, and then this is what we'll put inside of it. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a yeah. fresh design for the Air Force using an already used model. You said you know uh, some pilots mm-hmm. apply this? Yeah. And they love it? They love it, yeah. How How is the performance or the flight deck different from a 737-800? It's identical. It's, it's, it's identical. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was watching a YouTube video just now just to do some research, and it was a, a Delta pilot who was on reserve, and he would do these missions. As we're speaking, Doug, I just want you to know I'm very happy to not be at work because there's a massive thunderstorm. That's why it's getting really dark and in I here. Hear, I hear the thunder, so. yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, and I'm going to check my phone to see what they're going through at work. It'll be me tomorrow, so I'll, I'll get I'll get my turn soon enough. <laughs> Do you hear that? That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. The dogs are all great going crazy. Doug, we talked about some controversial issues from seat size and economy, London Heathrow passenger caps, and a geopolitical drama. How about something less controversial? The great emails we get from you, our listeners. This one is from Gordon. <laughs> I'm laughing because some of the emails that we get are controversial. They like, are. like some listeners saying that we talk too much about flying. So then what did Drew decide to do? He he doubled down and went to go get his private pilot's license. Sorry, right. Fra- sorry, Francis. <laughs> well, th- this is the email from Gordon. He says, as always, you do great work. But in listening to Doug's vacation details, he mentioned wearing shorts on the aeroplane. I love that aeroplane. Aeroplane. Yeah. We can bring that back. I was curious to know his thoughts about doing that in the interest of safety. I've always been taught to wear pants and shoes, no flip-flops, and keep personal belongings on you so that if you need to evacuate on takeoff or landing mishap, you're ready to roll. Unlike the crash of the Red Airlines plane recently, don't expect to carry your baggage off the plane in such a leisurely manner. Be ready to dash out at a moment's notice. Having pants on may minimize burns, and having your passport and wallet can simplify the aftermath. I know the chances are slim of anything happening, but it only takes the one time when you jump down in when when you jump down the slide and run across the tarmac into air, airplane shrapnel, cutting your foot, wishing you had real shoes on. Your thoughts, please, Gordon. That's a great question. I actually have thought about that quite a bit, and I'm at the point now where I don't wear plastic flip flops or anything. Like I'll wear leather shoes if I'm in a mishap like that. Mm-hmm. I was meant to be in that mishap and whether I'm wearing mm-hmm. jeans or shorts or anything like that, yeah. of, of course, from a safety aspect, yes, we, we should on this podcast, we should be saying you should always be wearing jeans, leather shoes, things that don't melt in, in all reality, the likelihood of that happening is one in, what did they say? One in 2 million. You're, you're more mm-hmm. likely to get struck by lightning than have be involved in an airplane mishap. I'll take the comfort. Well, I'll take the comfort and yeah, I'll take the comfort the over of, yeah. the ease of it over what could possibly happen. You know, when Doug is done with his flight and then he tells me he's uh, starting his trip on the 80 or the 101 heading back from SFO to Sacramento, like sometimes I'll tell you, all right, be careful. It's the most dangerous part of your trip. Mm-hmm. The flying is flying is one of the safest forms of travel. And when Doug gets into his car to drive home, that is the most dangerous part. I don't think about what I'm wearing when I get in my car. I don't think, oh, shoot, I'm wearing shorts. What if my car catches on fire? I should be wearing jeans for safety. No one thinks about that. I would not worry about that. I would just be comfortable on the flight. But one thing that you said about the passport, what did I say? Okay, having pants on may minimize burns and having your passport and wallet can simplify the aftermath. You guys, I would tell everyone, if you're traveling overseas, keep your passport in your pocket mm-hmm. because things get lost on planes. People take the wrong bag. Stuff falls out. It falls in between plane, between seats. Just that, just last week, thankfully it was a slow day and you got a lot of pictures from the ramp that day. <laughs> I volunteered to go find someone's passport off an international plane that was taken to a remote spot. Mm-hmm. Happens every day. People losing their passport. So when I travel, I keep my passport snugly in my pocket and it's thin enough that it doesn't bother me. I can still sleep, you know, wearing those pants or those shorts. You're making a good point for safety if there's an incident, but the chance of there being an incident is so low. Like Dud said, if you were in an incident, it was your time or, you know, I I would not overthink this. Yeah. I, I want to piggyback on one more thing that he mentioned here, the, the passport. I keep my passport in a little passport wallet pouch. It's RFID blocking, which mm-hmm. means that people can't steal the information. 
I also, in that same little wallet, I have an additional credit card or two and another form of identification because my biggest worry is when I'm in Frankfurt or Mexico City or New York City, I'm, I'm not just picking on international destinations. I could get pickpocketed. I could lose my wallet. Right. And then if, if I don't have backup credit cards, I'm, I'm kind of SOL at that point. I'm, of course, I'm, I'm going to have to call and cancel the cards that got lost. But I may not have a way to pay for food, to pay for train fare to the airport, to to pay for a lot of things. The credit card companies are good about sending you within like 24 hours and even to hotels a replacement credit card. But what if you yeah. need it before then? I right, always exactly. uh, or or additional cash if if you don't like credit cards, just put additional cash in a separate place. I always have backups to my primary means of identification, and also from a passport standpoint, make a copy of your passport. A, a color photocopy a really of your passport of, that's a really and good keep it in a separate place. Don't don't keep the copy in your passport wallet. <laughs> keep, passport. keep the passport photocopy in a different place. You mm -hmm. may not be able to go through customs using that, but if you go to an embassy or if you're tr if 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 your passport's stolen and you're trying to get it replaced, at least having that copy of the passport is is helpful when mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't have this touchless pay that all of our smartphones have and you're traveling, consider getting it because just like Doug said, if you lose your wallet, you're SOL. But if you have the contactless pay, you can put a few credit cards on that and you can usually use those most places. Robbie and I went to New Zealand and we were like, oh, we got to get some cash. We got it. So we were there for 10 days and we actually never got cash mm -hmm. because everywhere you went, we used the touchless pay. Yeah, which was your amazing. phone, your watch, anything like that, which now yeah. it's, it's really convenient for me because I, when I run in different cities, like I, I ran in Frankfurt and then got mm -hmm. breakfast, I, I'm, I used to carry my credit card with me. I'm starting yeah. not to because I can just pay with my watch. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I still am holding on. I have my phone and I have a little sticker thing that has a little pocket and I still have a, a couple credit cards. So I'm having problems letting go because it's not 100% of places that mm -hmm. do the touch pay, but almost maybe even 100% if I think about it. Really good question, Gordon. We just talked about how easy uh, touchless payments are and how you didn't get cash the entire time that you were in mm -hmm. New Zealand. Yeah. I am going to suggest get at least... $20, whatever the local currency is, just as backup. Mm -hmm. And I learned that yeah. the hard way in Frankfurt the other day. I didn't have any euros. I went to get a beer at a bar. And when I went to pay, they didn't take credit cards. And I didn't uh, have yeah. any euros. And I said to the guy, is there an ATM nearby? And he seemed uneasy thinking I was going to walk out on the bill. It was only yeah. like four euros. I had mm -hmm. a $10 US bill in my pocket. And I said, I'm so sorry. I hate to be this American who's doing this, yeah. but can, can I just pay the $10, like $10 bill. I know it's a lot more than what the beer cost, but I, I apologize for the inconvenience. And he said, yeah, that's fine. So always, <laughs> I, I felt I felt like that bad American who's mm -hmm. like, oh, take take you, my US dollars. But I, I didn't have any euros. They didn't take credit cards. That was something that I probably should have asked when I sat down at this place. I, I didn't yeah. think about it. Uh, oh, well. I always carry a, yeah. a, at least a little bit of local currency when you're traveling. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do in New Zealand. Thankfully, we didn't need it. So once again, we're going to finish this episode with Doug, dazed and confused in a hotel room in Cleveland, and he's going to Vegas tonight, right? Mm -hmm. At midnight 30? Midnight. That's more, yeah. of a, that's more clues. <laughs> you can try and find him on flight radar. Just pull up <laughs> it, flights. Oh, wait, it, it would have already happened. It, it'll be a couple <laughs> days after the fact, yeah. Yeah, but still, it'll be another first for you, and I can tell Doug's really excited. So you got to listen to the next episode to uh, find out. The other thing is I'm going on a trip after a long time. I'm flying. I'm so excited. I'm going to see my mom. And then I'm meeting Nate from uh, Nate in the Air on YouTube. And we're going to hang out, look at planes and at SFO and then fly to, to uh, New York from there. And hopefully so, hopefully, I will either meet up with you guys or possibly fly you. I, I still don't quite know what my schedule is going to be next week. Well, yeah. Yeah, I've already told Doug on the 9th of August. That's the day we're flying out of SFO. And... Whatever flight you're flying, whether it's to Honolulu, uh, we can't go to Incheon because he doesn't have a passport. Maybe I'll have to be like, sorry, Nate, you're on your own. I'm going to Incheon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, but you're probably going to be going to Newark, if anything. Yeah. And we have um, 
several flights. So whatever you're on, we'll be on. And if you're not working, just drive down to spend an hour with us. And say hi. Yep. Us. <laughs> yeah. We'll buy you a drink. Thanks for the comments and questions. Thank you, Gordon. Keep them coming. This podcast is your show. So go on our website, nextripnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. Far south. Like, uh, set, uh, I, I've seen it in the continental U. U sorry, I'm bumbling over my words. <laughs> All right, anything else on that? No, I... Uh, what was I going to say, dude? I'm just I'm just mumbling. My edits gonna no, be it's tough good. for me. No, you're okay. All right, All right. I didn't feel like you were mumbling okay. at all. Okay, I, I felt I like I, that... I I felt like I was just tripping over my words. No, not at all. Okay. In fact, the ferry flight. I want you to leave that. Oh, no, I'm I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Yeah. All right.